Rome FM. But to take the books that they're reading, the sources that I'm asking them to read, critically analyze them, draw the information out, we focus on the problem solving, the critical thinking and the analytical thinking. Hello there. Welcome to Rome FM. Here we dive into the minds, workflows, and machinations of the Rome cult, the believers of Rome research. My name is Norman Cella, and I am on a mission to deconstruct wisdom from all walks of life so we can understand each other better. In this episode, we talk with Mark Robertson, who is currently an instructor of history at several California community colleges teaching American and world history. His scholarly study focuses on historical memory, race, and racism, U.S. foreign policy, and critical pedagogy. His true joy in life is to assist in empowering the interested to better know themselves as learners and as a part of our larger human community. You can find him on Twitter at CalHistorian. We go through quite a range of topics, from his origin story to becoming an instructor of history at these colleges, struggling to find the perfect tool to complement his thinking, and discovering Rome through the intellectual disagreement between Tiago Forte and Connor, the influence of the book The Past as a Foreign Country on his perception of history, the notion of live roaming, how he uses Rome to teach students live in college and why he refuses to lecture. The use of Socratic dialogue to teach students how to critically think for themselves and his workflow in teaching others more about history. Mark is a great person to talk to, so without further ado, let's dive into my chat with Mark Robertson. Before we start this episode, I just want to give a quick shout out to a review, the very first review for Rome FM, which you can find on our Podchaser page. This review comes from Dave Thackeray, giving us a four-star review with the comment, a hugely insightful pod supporting one of the most useful apps in existence. Get Rome, get Rome FM. Thank you, Dave, so much for being a huge supporter and listening to our episodes. So I really do appreciate you sending over that review. <laughs> if you'd like to give a review of your own, you can check out our Podchaser page as well as give us a review on Apple Podcasts. And I will link the both of these down below on the public Rome graph as well as the show notes to this episode. And I will read it out loud for you in the next episode. So thank you again, Dave. Now on to the episode. Mr. Mark Robertson, welcome to Rome FM. How are you doing? Oh, wonderful. I'm so happy you invited me on here. This is going to be a fantastic conversation. And everything that I've heard so far with the, with the podcast has been great. So I want, I, want to, I want to listen to more. I really do appreciate it. And, you know, part of you listening to it more will be your own voice and your own thoughts uh, <laughs> on the show. So uh, I hope that... Not only the audience, the ones who are listening right now uh, are learning a lot from previous episodes, but we'll be sure to learn a lot from your experiences with Rome. Because I'm, I'm actually very, very interested in how you use Rome because you use it in a very specific manner. We'll get to that later uh, on in this conversation, but there has to be a time, which, which is what we're going to call from now on the dark times, uh, the times <laughs> yes, before yes. Rome. So I would love to know more about... Mark before Rome, what is your origin story? How did you stumble into the tool and what caught your attention? Well, I mean, a question that literally begins or, or has the concept of an origin story um, is, is a big thing to ask a historian. Uh, 
because the question <laughs> always is, uh, do you start that story? I mean, uh, as I joke with my, my students when trying to understand causation, right? When, you know, why did something happen? Um, well, doesn't it always start with the Big Bang? Right or 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 some other right uh, you know prequel event. So I, I suppose you know specifically to that question, you know how did I get to this or what what was it like before? I mean, really, it was a struggle in how to kind of keep the the knowledge in my head and to try and keep order. Um, you know, I wasn't a, a very good student growing up. Um, I, I almost failed multiple years in primary school and secondary school. It really, it really created an, an issue for me in, in formal education to be able to kind of keep things in, in order. Um, I just didn't develop those skills. And so once I graduated high school, I never um, decided to go to college. I didn't take the SATs or I didn't try to even think about that. Um, it was nearly a decade before I decided, you know what, maybe I should try this college thing. But basically to, to stick to that, that origin story of how, how I get to Rome is once I started my first kind of really difficult college courses at a community college, a very small community college, I realized that intellectual difficulty was not really a problem for me, even though I had thought that was the case for decades. Um, and I realized, you know what, I am smart. I'm going to take these courses. And I failed them miserably. And then I retook them, did them really well. And I figured out how to learn, how mm. to think. And it was at that moment when I went on my trajectory towards, towards uh, you know, college and graduate school and everything else. And it's through that journey where I really struggled to keep order in my head. And I tried every tool imaginable to, to keep those thoughts in control. I tried Evernote back in the early 2000s. I, I tried every different kind of, you know, Google Docs and, and all of these others. And it really took a long time for me to, to finally settle on this idea of Wikilinking, which I found with Bear originally. Uh, and I went through some others as well. But sometime in November of last year, 1999, or 1999. <laughs> Is that historian <laughs> talking? <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, in 2019, uh, uh, I, heard, I heard about it. I, I was following, I had just learned that year about Tiago Forte and um, the para method and all these other things. And I, uh, I, I saw the beef beginning to build with, with Connor and, and Tiago, um, or friendly intellectual disagreement, let's say, uh, between strong minds. Um, and uh, once I saw that and saw um, Connor talk about the tool, uh, I went to go check it out. And as soon as I started using it, all these barriers throughout my you know, personal knowledge management journey started to fall so quickly and so fast that I went headfirst um, in thick all it, back in November and have been using it ever since. I've left in an attempt to see if something else could do it. And I can't, still can't find anything else that works 
the way that Rome does as efficiently as it does. Wait, what? If you found this tool in in November and if you tried it, why did you try to attempt to leave to find something better? I guess I'm an eternal skeptic. I mean, ah, okay. it's, it's it's true. It's true that I mean, you might say I am one of those producti- productivity app um, jumpers, right? I, I want to jump to the to the tool that seems to work best for the workflow, but. I already had my workflow down and solidified five, six years ago, which we'll end up, you know, talking about here. Mm. And I just couldn't find the tool to fit it. And so I continued to try these other things. And once I realized Rome easily met 80 to 90% of my needs, I, and new tools came out and I was like, you know, maybe I should look at these others as well. Because what if I can get that extra 5% before I really invest? And I couldn't find it. Um, I still use some others, uh, but by, by far, uh, Rome fulfills the vast majority of my needs. And the only issues I have, honestly, um, are, are its lack of uh, uh, offline capabilities. And, and other than that, I mean, I can deal with that. Um, but other than that, it, I'm very happy with the tool at this point. Yeah, I I see the value of offline capability as well because there are times when I would want to either bring my laptop or bring my iPad to a different location which may or may not have Wi-Fi. So uh, there there are limitations or at least there's pretty much no point to having a second a second brain if you can't access it no matter where uh in the world. So I'm also uh looking forward to that even though I know at the moment it's a true believer only feature. But we'll see. We'll we'll see it roll out. I'm I'm sure eventually, uh, you know, it will get worked out. Uh, you know, for years I have been a native app person. I have avoided web apps like the plague. Ever since uh, the mid 2000s, when I was not necessarily burned, but kind of disillusioned by Evernote, um, a couple years after it had uh, it had started. And I've tried to avoid it ever since, and especially since I'm, you know, I'm I'm all in on Apple, um, and I love the integration capabilities of of Apple native native software, and so I, that's probably also this this other pain point. But I'm I'm over it more or less. I can work around it, and it's something that I talked about in my Rome Brain article as well. Um, I still use automation. I still use a variety of ways um, to to integrate my other apps into Rome. It just requires the clipboard and copying and pasting in. Um, so, but that's the way it goes. You brought up an interesting point because I really do want to talk about that Rome Brain article. Uh, and ex- <laughs> I have to say, I highly recommend it for anyone listening. Uh, an extremely in depth look at uh, your workflow complete with screenshots and everything. There is one thing I want to ask actually from that article. Um, you brought up a book, which let me just bring up the name of the book here. Where is it? Ah, I yes. can't even remember. The past is a foreign country. Oh, right? yes. Ah, yeah. So I want to ask, uh, what does that book mean to you? Oh, man. Um, that's a big question. Yes, it is. <laughs> <laughs> this was planned. Yes, um, it is. <laughs> um, okay. So 
my as as I was kind of alluding to before, my my journey into becoming an intellectual, which to me, I have a probably a much larger or much wider definition of what an intellectual is. Um, an intellectual is anyone who plays with ideas, regardless if you sit on your couch all day long and you play with ideas, you are an intellectual. So that that's my view of how that works. But basically, I got to the point in which I wanted to play with ideas and I enjoyed playing with ideas through my, my community college courses and, and through history. And this book in particular, The Past is a Foreign Country, is, it's, it's a cross between methodology, historiography, and uh, really just prose. It, it's trying to present a way and a perspective to look at history. And so it's playing with words, obviously, right? Where the past is, is a place that you seem familiar with, that you think you know, but it is unknowable. It is impossible to know everything about the past. And what you can know is simply through reference, as I mentioned in the article, through, through relics and memories and other histories. We need to think about history as more than just the past because they aren't the same thing. History is not the past. History is a representation of the past, just as a map is a representation of the globe. A map does not represent every kernel of truth of the earth that we live on, and neither does history. And so it's trying to kind of present this perspective that we visit the past. We visit and we are bound by the limitations in, in the amount of time that we spend in the past, by the things that we're able to see in the past and what we can't see. Just as if you go on vacation in a foreign country, are you truly going to know that foreign place? No. I mean, I mean you will know a great deal, right? And you will learn a great deal. But it's, it's about the heart of what history is. That kind of perspective on history is something that I've grown to, to really develop much further in my own mind about how we understand the past, how we know the past, how we write about the past, particularly on the societal level, right? How a culture understands the past or how institutions or individuals or the school system understands the past. And so that's something that I play a great deal with now. Um, I did a lot of that in, in graduate school as well, trying to understand, are there patterns? Are there systems? How do we understand the past? And it, that book really started me on that journey, still ongoing today. Well, that's pretty fascinating, actually. It sounds more like the book is 50% history and 50% perception of history. Like it's trying to introduce a framework or a specific way of looking at this concept of history. I'm assuming that there is this mass public perception of what history is <laughs> and that you're trying your best as a lecturer or at least as an intellectual to let people know that, no, that's not the only way you should look at it also as a representation of the past, i.e. history that is recorded in a specific manner. I'm assuming that there's also that 
uh, as well uh, brought up in the book. <laughs> yes, no, absolutely. It, it's it's about um, the the fact that there is a massive, massive. Certainly, I'm only speaking from the context of the United States, and in particular, the West Coast. Mostly, since I live in California, um, that is that is my personal experience. But through study, um, it's pretty obvious that in the United States. The perception of of our past as well as the global past is skewed uh, in my in my belief and in my opinion in some troublesome ways um, and that is not to say that I expect perfection or that others don't have the same biases and perspective, but just to give you a ridiculous example, if you were to ask young children in France, in Germany, in England, in India, and in China, and in Japan. I have asked students who I have, who have come from these locations, how much they know about their own national and or regional past. And it is so much more, so much more in depth. And part of that problem is we have a particular perception of what the past is and it blocks out so much, mm. right? And it, and it doesn't allow, there's so much cognitive dissonance about anything that is different from the narrative that we've been instructed in primary and secondary and, you know, even in tertiary, you know, higher ed as well. So I am fighting the fight not to necessarily challenge anyone's view of the past, I'm, I'm not an activist in that sense, mm. but I want people to recognize that how they know what they know is a part of a system of power and institutions. And, and if, they, if they at least get that through the context of whatever class I'm teaching, I, I am a happy person. Yeah, I've had that experience actually firsthand uh, from uh, doing exchange in Tokyo and looking mm. at a critical look on the history of Japan in World War II. And I think the most, maybe you might be super interested in this, but I'll just share with you anyway. Uh, the most prime example is the censorship of textbooks and who won mm. or how mm. did the war resolve. And yeah. we had actual examples of textbooks that censored up information. And it was to the point where some of the books had black lines covering the uh, text <laughs> up to full pages. Like, you know, you, okay, you have these like cities that are ruined because of war and all that, of course. And you have these classrooms and people are learning outside because, you know, they have, there are no roofs, uh, roofs and shelters, etc. But the textbooks that they were learning from barely had any text and like 40% of it because it was blocked out because Japan wanted to cover its losses. So that's an example of, I'm not sure what's the proper word to describe it, but essentially it's history that is refined in a certain manner. So that they would teach a generation of people to grow up knowing that their country is perceived or given, you know, put in a certain outlook. We can totally talk about this in a in a completely uh, other episode, I'm sure, because uh, you, as you can, as you've already shared, uh, you have a lot to say about how generations will grow up looking at history, thinking about history, true, true. and uh, looking at it, um, uh, trying to give people the opportunity to question their current perception of history uh, through your classes yes. uh, in community college. So let's get right into that. Um, I know that you do a lot of 
live roaming, if that's the right mm-hmm. word, or at least yeah, teaching. I mean, yeah, yeah, <laughs> of course. That's, that's that's the that's the phrase uh, that that I used. I, I had a couple different ones, but I also did a call with uh, Rob Hayesfield mm. um, several months ago. And he concurred that he thought that the the phrasing was was appropriate, and and so uh, I'm running with it now. Um, but yeah, live roaming, we can do the backstory if appropriate, but it really comes down to the kind of principles I have in terms of teaching a course, because I don't lecture. Um, I refuse to lecture. Hmm. My my main issue with lecturing. Even though I love a good story, I love a good lecture, I will listen to lectures that are online for hours on end, and they're amazing, beautiful storytellers. But for me, I believe first and foremost in the community college mission. And so I, I need to first preface the, the idea that what, what I'm trying to do is to work with as many students as possible in community colleges, and, and for clarity, if, if that's not a term that is widely known, um, these are, are two-year institutions. So it's your freshman and sophomore year uh, in universities in the United States. Um, and they're often uh, much cheaper. But the perception is, is that a community college is easier, a community college is worthless, and that coming out with an associate's degree, which is, you know, the result, is um, pointless. And I'm fighting against that, too, because m- the most revolutionary educational experience I ever had was in a community college. And that, by tenfold, I went to wonderful universities after the fact, and nothing compared to those original moments. So I'm trying to create this space um, a, a space of, of dialogue and discussion within my classrooms that requires me to have knowledge on demand, basically. And so I operate my classroom based on uh, Socratic dialogue and uh, project-based learning, to put it you know, the kind of simplest way possible. Project-based learning is, is, in effect, a system by which you ask students to do two things, basically. You ask students to complete a project, whatever that may be, something, something tangible, something that takes time, something that's constructed, more than just a one-off, but, but something that requires a significant amount of construction overall. In the process of completing that project, we use what I call milestones, so signposts, waypoints, right, to the end of that project. Um, by which we go through the historical skills, we go through the historical content, and all of this. Now, that's not all that revolutionary, right? I mean, lots of people do project-based learning, but what I'm not going to do is to then lecture, or as I like to call it, deliver content, when what I really want them to do is to not necessarily decipher audio content, but to take the books that they're reading, the sources that I'm asking them to read, critically analyze them, draw the information out, and be able to, to, to construct that project that I'm asking. And so in class, we focus not on delivering content, even though that ends up happening. We focus on the problem solving, the critical thinking and the analytical thinking. 
in my course, you are given a set of historical questions. I, I give them, uh, depending on the semester, since I teach five-week classes, eight-week classes, 10-week classes, 15-week classes, 18-week classes, so it all depends. But I give them a set of questions. And the course is basically this. Here are the questions. How can I help you answer these questions? The questions are complex. The questions ask you to do intellectually rigorous work. But I'm there in a Socratic fashion to address their concerns. Often what is asked right off the bat is what the hell is this question even asking? <laughs> and to me, that is the most beautiful question ever. Because in essence, you are trying to interpret something in the world in which you don't have the tools to know how to interpret. And so I want to be there to say, okay, here's the question you have. Let's go down this road. Let's talk about what analysis means. Let's talk about what deconstruction means. Let's talk about these different concepts that you may need to understand this question. Mostly historical specific, right? The historian's toolkit, as we like to call it. But it's, it's a way for students to emerge into them their own selves as intellectually capable to solve very, very complex problems. And so with that as the foundation, I could get any question at all at any point in time. And so although I, I consider myself to have somewhat of a good memory, um, but not really. Um, frankly, I think I have a horrible memory compared to some of the professors I've had in my life. Um, where they can drop facts right off, no, no problem. I need something. And that's where Rome filled all those gaps that I needed. I realized that I needed some wiki-linking, like I mentioned before. I had found something to help me with that. But Rome gives me the capabilities to, if I don't know the exact answer to their question, I can quickly, on the fly, pull up the information that I need to answer that question. But that's only one aspect. I mean, does that make sense so far? I mean... Yeah, it does. Um, I am currently imagining myself as a student <laughs> in your course. And I think that's the best, uh, it's the best way for me to immerse myself in your explanation. So, you know, standard courses, at least the ones that I have taken, uh, tend to be... 12 weeks, a lecture every week. There's a tutorial. So it's sort of like a, you know, like a classroom. Everyone comes in and then they might do a presentation. They might do like an exercise, sort of like high school, right? Except there's sure, a lecture sure. element. Um, and you have an extra hour blocked for delivering content. And this delivered content tends to be extremely dense, or at least you cannot absorb all of it in one hour. And I think that brings up the disadvantages of lecturing as a format. As in, you, yes. are, you have to be concise. It all depends on your speaking ability. It all depends mm -hmm. on how much or how in-depth are you going. And some people may just not be great at learning from hearing someone speak on stage uh, because you lack the synchronous feedback or the synchronous response, sure, especially sure. because you're lecturing one to 1,000 as opposed to a one-to-one -one talk. I, I really like the way that you would... One, except that you may not remember everything. So you would have Rome be a compliment to you answering questions from students to 
help with students with answering obvious questions like what is this like what am yes. i supposed to do here yes because at the very least you recognize that they're attempting uh to answer it as opposed to not even trying uh, which is a whole other uh story together but yeah please uh keep going i do have a question but maybe i'll just save it uh while you're sure going, sure and and i you know some 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 things that you stated you know made me reflect and i and, and to emphasize this point it's incredibly valuable for one, as, as an instructor, to say and be willing to say, I don't know. I have no problem with that. I have received uh, uninvited criticism from, from mostly Twitter, which, you know, that's just the way it goes. <laughs> um, <laughs> which I, I'm I not opposed to, to critique and criticism. I'm not opposed to that at all. Uh, but, but whether you look at the students who really dislike my course or these individuals who might want to criticize and say, well, why don't you just teach? And that to me is the problem, right? Teaching has this very narrow definition in the public mind mostly. And I want to expand that. We get more value out of solving the problems that students have in the moment then replicating the things that they can easily get from other sources. For example, why would I repeat what the textbook says? That seems to me like a waste of your time. I can understand like spaced repetition perhaps, right? Maybe you read the textbook the day before or the night before, <laughs> right? Or, or sometime earlier and you're getting reinforcement in the classroom. I don't like parallel reinforcement. I want conflictual reinforcement. I want you to hear what I have to say and ask yourself, does that align with what I've already been exposed to in my own history, right? In, in the past of my education or in the resources that I've been reading? Wait a minute, wait a minute. The textbook says X, Y, and Z, and you just, one, didn't go X, Y, and Z. You went one, Y, three, why, why are you screwing with the narrative here? Because it's in that way that we're able to actually study the world that we live in as opposed to these kind of silos, right? So I think it's best to say, here, students, here's what we're doing. Where do you need help? Instead of repeating what they already know. I mean, I would hate to be the one that talks for an hour and everyone's like, why did I buy the textbook if you were just going to tell me what uh, was in the textbook or vice versa, right? Why am I here in class if I could <laughs> just read the textbook? True, then go read the textbook. Why, why would you be there? So I want to provide an environment in which we can have a conversation about the myriad of ways to look at X, Y, or Z and deal with the difficult questions deal with the whys and the hows and the consequences, not the names, dates, and figures, and all of these other things. And so I see this Socratic approach, this, this chaotic approach, as far more valuable in return for the real world, real world, like education isn't real, but anyway, <laughs> um, <laughs> um, but, but also how the mind works, right? And, and, and how learning works. And so 
uh, with, with, with that long, long preface, right? Um, how I directly use Rome yep. is usually it's, it's a question of, I want to make sure I get like the order of significance right to something or students are asking specifically, where do I find this information? Because that is something I want them to do. I tell them the first day in class when they, in, in the introduction, I ask them, your job is to ask me what the answer is. My job is to help you find and discover the answer. So if they need to find some, some concept in the textbook, I can pull up Rome since I have my textbook in Rome textually I can, and it's tagged appropriately and everything else, I can find and filter every instance if they're looking for um, some conversation about the black civil rights movement in the 1960s, or they're asking about the conservative revolution in the United States in the 70, uh, 1970s and 80s. I can cite the passage, the paragraph, as well as the primary and secondary sources that I also would offer to them immediately. And so I can actually be the guide that's in there with them, as opposed to someone that says, yeah, it's in chapter 13. You didn't read it yet? Go read it and you'll figure it out. I don't see any value in me being a waypoint or, or, a, or a kind of uh, a director, right? I want to I want to be with them the whole time trying to figure out all of these problems. And so Rome allows me to do that. But since I also use a digital whiteboard, I don't actually write on a whiteboard or a chalkboard and I don't use PowerPoint slides or anything like that. I use a digital whiteboard on my iPad and I have Rome in a slide over which is the little window on an iPad that you can pull up on the on the right side. The students can't see it, hmm. but I can drag and drop uh, snippets of text from my notes. And I tell them, here, here's what I have in my notes for this topic, um, giving points of significance or something like that. And then they can look at what I have and ask further questions. And so I can drag and drop text. I can find the information I need, but I also have in Rome links to resources in my DevonThink database. So as, as we know, um, Rome is not efficient in dealing with anything other than text at this point, mm. right? I mean, maybe in the future it will. That has no bearing for me. I'm not going to use it for that. I want it for text and text only. But I want to drag and drop images. I want to drag and drop audio files. I want them to see movies and videos that I can pull from my database. And so uh, in line with all of these data points in Rome, I have callback links to DevonThink, and that immediately pulls up once I click on it and drag and drop it into my digital whiteboard so that they can have that element as well and not just text. Yeah, actually, the, uh, the notion of DevonThink is uh, a question that was brought up on Twitter uh, when we were preparing uh, for wow. this. So 
at Colby9511326 with his Whoa. name, Colby. Pretty interesting uh, Twitter <laughs> username. So shout outs to you, Colby. I uh, was about to ask you if uh, how did you integrate uh, Devon Think with your workflows, but I think you've covered most of that. Are there any tricks or shortcuts that you use in particular with that? Or is it more about just backlinking to specific files on your Devon Think? It's, it's mostly, um, I mean, there, there are two, way, two reasons why I use Devon Think. One, it, it was my prior note-taking database. It oh, accepts okay. Wikilinks as well. And so I used that before but it's not iPad friendly, the Wikilink part. Everything else is iPad friendly, but they don't support the Wikilink on DevonThink to go. But DevonThink is an extremely powerful uh, file manager. Um, its search is superior to basically everything that I've seen out there. Um, it has Boolean operators, it has near operators, so you can find a word four words away from the word you're looking for, right? It, it's, it's extremely powerful in that regard. But it has a, the now relatively common feature that every file in that database has a unique URL. Most web apps refuse to open a local X callback URL. Evernote won't do it. Notion won't do it. These are all others that I've tried. Rome does it. This is one of those barriers that probably was the biggest in all my search in, in years prior was what app could open an X callback URL that was uh, um, uh, web-based uh, since I couldn't find a native app that would, that would really solve my problem. Uh, Dynalist doesn't do it either, right? Mm. So each item is, it has a unique URL and it pulls it up and I can drag and drop off of that. So that's, that's probably the most used feature I do um, with that, but I also export and backup my Rome database and Markdown files in my DevonThink database. And there are two uses to that. One, it's offline. And so if I really need access to something, I can get at least, right, what, 70%, right, since not everything transfers in the Markdown files, but I can get the text and I can search it and I can read it. And I could add stuff if I want, but I'll add it somewhere else, which is another story. But the search capabilities are superior there. So I can find anything in my DevonThink database, whether it's image, file, video, or part of my Rome database. Um, so those are the two reasons why, why I would use DevonThink. It's just a superior file manager in that regard. Um, and it has a significant amount of automation and everything else that I would use you know, for other reasons. But. I should check that out, actually, because if it was a way for me to refer to a lot of PDFs that I have on hand, especially uh, journal citations that I want to use uh, whilst having Rome open, I think that'll be really it's, useful. You can <laughs> even link to a specific page in a PDF document. Oh, so you, wow. can up, you can append question mark page equals whatever the page is, and it will go right to that page. So for me, I have my journal articles and everything else that I need for my students, I can go right to the page. I will drag and drop that page out of the PDF and drop it onto the whiteboard and we will read it together, highlight it together, annotate it together and move on with the rest of the sketch noting dialogue. It's very, very useful. Oh, wow. Okay. All right. Okay. Okay. You're, you're converting me here. Okay. Okay. I, I will definitely <laughs> check it out. I will, I will stop. Okay. <laughs> 
there is something I want to ask now that you brought that up because you said that you would bring it up and then you would highlight and annotate it together with your students. Yes. Do you keep a record of every iteration or interaction of these um, sources on your Rome for other classes to refer to. And what I mean by that is say, for example, that you've just done a summer class or a, you know, or a spring class where you've already done this course before, like last year, do you find value in showing the interactions or conversations or highlights uh, from last year's cohort and sharing them with current cohort? Or is there some sort of friction there that I may not be aware of? Uh, Let's, let's, Let's describe the myriad of ways. Um, okay. So first, first and foremost, um, after the first couple of weeks of a, of a class beginning, mm. I will invite any student to come to any of my courses if they wish, whether that's the same class or a different class. Because as, as I think might be obvious by now, there's, there's value outside of content, right? Analytical thinking and the like. So any student can visit any course they wish within reason. They got to let me know first. And, you know, I got to keep track of who's coming in and who's going, but there's that. I record all of this for one. So um, this is available in transcript form, in video form, uh, as well as in PDF form. So if someone wants to go back and listen to the video and watch the whole thing over again, that's there for you. If you're just looking for some of the text or the images that I wrote down, you can look at the PDF. Or if you would like the text, you can just read it. And there are numerous web, web services and or accessibility features on a device that'll just read you the text for you. Um, so there's that as well. I also um, do the vast majority, I take a kind of shorthand on-demand notes on my daily page in Rome while I'm doing this. So I will often, if, if, because I talk too fast for one. And so one way that I've discovered that I can slow myself down is I am writing what I'm doing into my daily page in Rome during class. So I'm typing away and I will query in uh, live to find the sources that I need and have the query build and then I can then share, I will pull it out, but I will share the, uh, my side, my memory of the course as well. Okay. And I am totally accepting and willing, and I do share all previous semesters with any student that wishes. Some say, why would you give... It, it, it almost, people hear it and they say... They, they almost interpret it like I'm giving the answers or the, the value of some other course to this course and they don't have to work for it. Well, I'll tell you what, if you hear a conversation 12 weeks into my course and you're in week two into the same class, you're not going to know what the hell they're even talking about, right? <laughs> and so it's just another way of getting the content and it's voluntary. So if the student wants to do that, there's, there's this emotion, there's this desire to, to have another direction or another avenue of inquiry into the content. And so have at it. Right? I, I have no problem with that whatsoever. Oh, that's amazing. Because that really promotes 
a student's desire to learn from as many angles as possible, even if it's looking into a past cohort's interactions or conversations to see if, you know, like you play as a third party person, you're looking into this context from beforehand and you're asking yourself, how did they come to that conclusion? Why did they say it that way? How did it get this source? Or maybe they brought up a source and you're just asking yourself like, oh, I didn't know about that one. I can probably ask the lecturer or uh, I can probably ask a professor for more. Oh, okay. I really like that. I really like that. I thought you were going to go. Rome is the Rome is the stitching, right? Yeah. Without Rome, I can't do much of this. I mean, I tried with Notion. I tried with Bear. I tried with Evernote. And it just isn't as capable. And it's far more effortless in Rome than any other. This that seamless uh, integration, regardless of where it is uh, in your database of knowledge. Uh, I think this is where uh, Rome in itself has such a distinct advantage uh, over other uh, applications in that structure as a concept doesn't play a part or isn't really so much of a barrier when it comes to trying innovative things like this. When you were referring to, to things. I would have to say, sorry, my apologies. I would, I would have to say it's, it's not a barrier. Mm. But I want to push back ever so slightly with the common narrative that Rome ignores or is oppositional to structure. I I extremely disagree with that concept, right? However, as most acknowledge, I think, it's it's a ground up, right? It's, It's built as opposed to dropped, so to speak, right? Yeah, and so okay. I feel yeah. like, you, you know, our brains create the structure, right? And the structure that we build is unique to us. The architecture we build, the spatial recognition that we build is valuable and useful, but it is still highly structured. But you can, well, here I go with the puns again. You can easily roam it, right? You can easily traverse that geography of your, of your mind palace, right? And without Rome's fluidity, as, as you suggest, and everyone argues, without that fluidity, I don't think it would be useful if we couldn't then create. Uh, there is a, deba- uh, a discussion from Malcolm Ocean and, and many others about what we call the spaces that we, that we build in Rome. Uh, and yes. to me, I read it as geography, right? It is, it is a place. It is a region. It has landmarks. It has buildings. It has paths. Right. And and Rome is so fluid and flexible that you can build anything with it. That's why I'm going to continue with it. Uh, And I'll try other things, of course, but (laughs) I doubt anything will draw me away. (laughs) I mean, you'd probably dabble. And then two weeks later, you would be just asking yourself, why does this not have link references? Why are these blocks <laughs> yes. not moving? Yes. And then you come back yes. to, uh, because all I mean, I roads... do use, I, I still use uh, Obsidian for publishing, hmm. right? So um, just like I use all my Markdown files in DevonThink, I use all my Markdown files in Obsidian if I want to build something that I kind of want to re-import back into Rome. So, you know, here and there and everywhere, I guess. Yeah, I'm sure. I mean, for intellectuals, having a toolkit, a variety uh, of tools at your disposal in trying to, one, think, two, write, and three, present uh, all the work that you've done um, may not find, you may not find all of it in one app, which is perfectly fine. That's why Rome is quite organic in its um, 
Yes. In its versatility. I think I think maybe another way to look at structure from Rome's perspective perspective is that the structure it's so great that it's fluid. Like it's so yes. organic that you can mold it into anything you want. Instead of it being a tool that has no structure. I have my fingers up here. No yes, structure. Yes, yes. <laughs> it is it is a tool that has such great organizational structural features that it adapts to anything that you want like it shapes to any uh any form or shape of your brain that you desire so i think that's uh that's what we like the most about beautifully the put beautifully put <laughs> yes thank you thank you now we are uh coming up on time mark but i'm sure that okay we could probably talk about like four or five hours but we just yes. for this episode we are coming up on time so i would love to um end this conversation with a couple of segments but seeing as how you've listened to a few episodes you might already be expecting this so the first Slightly. question <laughs> the first question <laughs> is how would you describe rome to someone who hasn't started using it yet oh you know i i did hear uh you know once i listened to the third episode of of, of you know the podcast i was like oh okay pattern here all right i see yeah. where this is going um and and it's wonderful because of how interpretive it could be to anyone, right, in, in how they're going to describe this. You know, I don't have anything unique to add necessarily other than, so there's kind of two ways I would look at it here. Yeah. How would I describe it to someone who is as much a nerd as I am, right? And that's different, right? Um, I, I would, because I have a five-year-old and, and, uh, and a 16-month-old at the moment, um, I Every time I think about this, even though in, in college I, I thought about mental geographies and, and mental landscapes, right? All I can, I can't get this out of my head. I don't know if anybody is going to be familiar with the movie, but there's a Disney movie. It's called Wreck It Ralph Breaks the Internet, right? Mm. Um, yeah. And they walk around the internet, right? And the internet is represented by a physical 3D space. And so that's how I, I would describe it to someone as as a as as a as your mind in 3d in which you can traverse and travel but if it's someone if a if a student is asking or wondering i mean i would just basically describe it as you know the most effort effortless way to take notes and thoughts that that is available at this moment i mean you don't have to think about anything except for your thoughts and to put them in there, right? To begin with, right? I, I mean, once, if, if the question is, how do you get someone to be able to conceive of it? That's, that's what it is. You can type and your thoughts emerge into this kind of world that you're creating. I think the, the answer to that question specifically, you'll have to take a more Socratic perspective because it will be once they have onboarded onto the tool, they have to yeah. search for the answer themselves and they will yep. find guides and advice and tips and tricks from Rome cult and anywhere else. But in the end, uh, you know, Rome is what you make of it, right? N yes. No matter if you're a student or uh, whatever profession or field of interest that you're involved in, you'd have to seek it yourself. And in the end, like your system and my system is completely different. Like I've looked at your yeah. workflows and mine is quite different. Uh, but we share the same commonalities in that we understand the potential uh, from using 
uh, the tool for whatever that we're using. So that's why we are having this conversation right now. I really like that you brought up a Disney movie to to help with understanding <laughs> this. That's a really good way to, you know, a really good analogy to explain to people how it works. Because if you could just imagine it to be the internet, but it's your brain through yeah. this movie, I think that's that would exactly be... what it is. Yeah. <laughs> and of, and of course, uh, final question: What does Rome mean to you? Yeah, and I think I've I've you know expressed this a, a few times you know by now, but yeah. but to 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 you know to put it succinctly, it 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 is almost more than a landscape for me or or a landscape of my mind, and it's really um, it's it's almost like spiritual geography. Right. I mean, because what is in there is not text. It's not just ideas. It's not just concepts, but thinking. It is, it is my spirit textified. I don't know. Right. It is, it is, it is embodied in these words in such a configuration that is, that is unique to me. Right. And, and all the only word that is ambiguous enough or wide enough to, to encapsulate that is, is going to be spirituality, right? It, it, it is my experience right in there, time stamped <laughs> and with text. <laughs> I love that. Uh, I've never had that explained uh, in that manner. So thank you for that. I, I think that people would really resonate uh, with the notion of these words embodying who you are, or at least a reflection of your thoughts uh, in a chronological format, especially because we're in a daily page uh, format for a lot of things, which I think is a very underrated feature. A lot of people don't talk about it enough when we're trying to compare this tool with anything else. Uh, the daily pages format is like the sole tag yes. to put every single note uh, beneath it. So thank you for that. And in the pursuit yeah of traversing uh, the spiritual geography that is your mind uh, and your thinking. Mark, thank you so much. If we want to reach out to you to contact you for anything related to Rome or how you use it um, in community college or how you use it to do live roaming, uh, how do we contact you? Twitter is always the best. Um, I'm very busy and so I'll ignore my email for a long time. But if <laughs> all I have is... 256 characters and maybe a couple repetitions of that, I can, I can fire off anything rather, relatively quickly. But if I have to sit down and write, that's, that's less likely. So Twitter is definitely the best. But um, for, for those of you who recognize my handle, I mean, I'm on the Slack channel a lot. Um, I'm on the forum, which hopefully will grow soon. Uh, and, and in many other places um, in terms of automation and, and kind of you know Apple OS kind of stuff. Uh, all throughout the internet. So um, I don't know if uh, anybody else has got that handle. So uh, if you see that somewhere, it's probably me. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, links to all of these, and you can find Mark uh, in all these channels, uh, will be in the public Rome graph uh, to link to this episode. So Mark, uh, I will see you on Twitter. No, thank you. Thank you for listening to the show. Make sure to hit subscribe in your favorite podcast listening app. And for a full version of the show notes to this episode, you can check out the public Rome graph. The link to that will be in the description right below. For more updates, comments, feedback, and suggestions, you can reach out to me at RomeFM on Twitter. 
keep roaming your thoughts, and I will see you in the next episode. Take care.